coming up on the exam room. And every single time that we try to engineer, like excessively engineer the way that the body works, we end up discovering that we're not as good at it as we think that we are. And instead, I think that the the you know foundational approach here is that there are steps that we can take that are clearly proven to provide longevity, to allow us to live longer, healthier lives that ultimately work through the gut microbiome and they can be implemented today and we don't need to wait another day. And no matter what age you are, no matter what age you are, the opportunity exists to add, to add lifespan, to add health span. You can live longer and you can live healthier with the choices that you start like literally today. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in St. Paul, Minnesota, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Cape Town, South Africa. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 78 of season 6, number 474 overall. Living to 100. It's a goal that once seemed completely impossible for most of us, but now it's becoming more and more within our reach every single day. And it turns out that long journey to triple digits could begin with the trillions of microbiome that are in your gut. And researchers, they are very clever. They're starting to put this stuff together. They decided that they wanted to know what the microbiome of some of the longest living people in the world looked like. And how does that compare to your microbiome or mine? So what they did was they looked at these centenarians. These are people who live to 100. They looked at centenarians in two parts of the world that are known for living well beyond the norm. They looked at people in Japan and they looked at people in Sardinia. And these regions, if they sound familiar, it's because they're both blue zones. Studied by Dan Buettner and the Blue Zones Project, this renowned researcher on longevity. He was just on the show. And so today we're going to be talking about this particular study on microbiome and longevity. And joining us to talk about how microbiome may impact your life expectancy and what these researchers found is our friend, he is the Mac Daddy of Microbiome. He is the guru of gut health and a man with a full-blown bromance with fiber. He is Dr. Will Bolsowitz. And he joined me this week on the exam room live. We also had the opportunity to open up the doctor's mailbag where we talked about eating raw beans. And he had a crazy story about a TV station in Japan that once gave some really bad advice about raw beans that made a ton of people sick. Matter of fact, the station got flooded with phone calls about this. Plus, we had a fun question about how many beans you put in your chili. I discovered a bag of 15 different kinds of beans that I'm really anxious to dive into, but how many beans are too many beans when it comes to variety in your chili? Plus, how all of this microbiome diversity plays into your health, your immune system, and to the point of today's show, how many trips around the sun you might see. So let's get into it right now with our friend, Dr. B, the Gut Health MD. How are you living, man? Chuck, I, ha I 
I have a bromance with fiber, but my primary bromance is with you. I'm currently in the fiber fueled studio presented by Chuck Carroll, otherwise known as Charles Carroll. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. And, you know, the, the thing that you need to realize, Chuck, is that if you're going to go with these wild introductions, I will retaliate and, 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 and give you a little tease as well. I encourage. And so if you want to go tit for tat every month, we can do this, man. It'll be a game of one-upsmanship. And suggestions are welcome, yeah. so drop them in the chat. The games begin. <laughs> All right, man. Let's talk about longevity and microbiome. Two words that I had not really put together before. Um, but I know that they were looking at you know, a couple hundred individuals from Japan and Sardinia. Really interesting findings here. What did they discover? Yeah, so uh, first of all, this is coming out of the Broad Institute, which is um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in association with Massachusetts General Hospital. And the, the key author here is someone named Romnick Xavier, who actually I interviewed with, but it was a long time ago when I was interviewing for my GI fellowship. Um, and they were recruiting me to Mass General Hospital. Um, anyway, I went, ended up going to a different place, UNC. But so this is someone that I'm familiar with. He does amazing work, and it's in the space of where the microbiome comes into contact with the immune system. And so what they were looking at here, Chuck, which is kind of unique, is not just looking at the bacteria, which is where we tend to focus all of our attention when it comes to the microbiome, but they were simultaneously taking a look at the viruses. It turns out, so we talk about numbers, numbers like 38 trillion. Okay, 38 trillion is the number of bacteria that we have living inside of our intestines. And that outnumbers our human cells. We are less than 50% human. But if you think that's a lot, we think there's at least 10 times, if not 100 times more viruses that are a part of our body. And these viruses, there's a specific family of viruses, Chuck, not to get super nerdy here, but I think I've already crossed that line, <laughs> called bacteriophages. And these bacteriophages... They don't infect human cells. They infect bacteria. Bacteria are living organisms. And because they're able to do this, they're actually able to shape the microbiome. So essentially what they found in this study, Chuck, is that, yes, it does come back to the bacteria. The centenarians, the people that are living to 100 years old, there's a different microbiome in terms of the bacteria compared to other people. Um, diversity is a part of that story. But that it actually turns out that it appears the viruses are bringing out certain characteristics within the bacteria. And these characteristics are what seem to be um, facilitating longevity. And so all health starts in the gut. Part of this is the bacteria. And really what they're adding to this story here is the simultaneous view into what's going on with the viruses. Yeah, you know, and, and it's really interesting that you, you started there with the viruses, because one of the things that I read in a story that was kind of covering this research was that it was a quote from one of the researchers who said, like, some of these these viruses that you have in you, they could not care less about those human cells. They only care about the stuff that's rolling around in, in your gut right there. And that blew me away because I just assumed that all viruses were kind of naturally programmed to attack human cells. Not the case, though. This You know, this is this is where... Um we we are raised with an understanding of these complex frankly ecosystems that are really sort of centered around whatever our existence is as humans not to be too philosophical here chuck but like if you go back to let's go back to 1900 okay heart disease was not one of the top three causes of death 
cancer was not one of the top three causes of death. What were the top three causes of death? They were all infections. They were all infections. And the development of antibiotics, which, by the way, came out right around the end of World War II, like 1944, 1945, the development of antibiotics is what allowed us to overcome the top three causes of death and get to a place where now what we're dealing with is heart disease and cancer instead of infections. So I think that the point that I'm trying to make here, Chuck, is that, you know, we have been raised to, for example, vilify bacteria. Bacteria are bad. No. Bacteria are good. There are some bad ones, but the vast majority of them are good. We've been raised to believe that um, parasites or worms are bad, but actually we have research that suggests that there's certain parasites that actually are beneficial and protect us. There are worms that protect people from Crohn's disease. We, we have been raised to believe that viruses are bad, and clearly that's understandable within the framework of, look, we just got out of a pandemic. It was scary. Of course, we think viruses are bad right now, but yet, no, viruses are far more complicated than this, um, and they don't just touch humans. They touch all life, and in many cases, those viruses are doing things that are beneficial to humans, and this is an example of it right here. So what do you think is, is happening here? What causes the microbiome for these centenarians to look a little bit differently than the typical person? Is it their diet? Is it their overall lifestyle? What, what do they think? I mean, do we even know yet at this point? Well, we don't really know how to shape the virome. So the, what they're inferring, what the scientists are inferring here is that the virome, meaning the, the, the collection of viruses that a person contains, is actually directly affecting the microbiome. And through that effect is providing these benefits where people can live to a ripe old age. Um, and we don't know how to shape the virome. It's not the same as the microbiome. It's not conceptually eat fiber and therefore you will, you know, change the virus, change the viruses. But at the same time, I don't think that we should lose sight of the big picture here and overly fixate on these viruses just because we have this one study that is compelling and interesting. Let's not lose sight over the fact that we have tremendous control over our microbiome. Yes, viruses are part of what are shaping it, but we also have tremendous control over our microbiome. And if you go from blue zone to blue zone to blue zone, the five of them, or you know, perhaps if you've read Dan's new book, there's, there's now six. If you go within these places, there are certain themes that start to emerge. And these themes from a dietary perspective are the exact same themes that you will hear me out there pounding the drum, shouting and yelling from the rooftops. This is what we need more of in our life. We need more fiber. We need more plant-based foods. It's the exact same thing that they're doing in the blue zones, right? So it's not a coincidence that the things that prove to be beneficial to our gut microbiome also turn out to be the exact same things that are beneficial for longevity. It's all intertwined. I want to read this sentence to you from one of those uh, those articles that I was mentioning earlier. I, I just love the way that the person worded this because it, it gets me so excited for this, man, and, and this conversation. It's just framed magnificently. If it doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. Quote, in Centenarians, the team found not only more diverse bacteria and viruses, but also viruses in the lytic lifestyle, during which viruses are active and burst and kill the bacteria they infect, a phase that is more common in infants than adults. That paints quite the picture in, in terms of how these viruses uh, are, are going to work in there, man. That's pretty cool. I wonder though, like, what is it, uh, you know, in, in infants versus the adults and then 
you know, then we have these centenarians that, that share these properties as well. What do we know about what's happening with infants versus as we get older? Is it just because everything's so new or, or what's up? Well, we don't, we don't know where things stand with the viral uh, biome that, you know, we call the virome. We don't know where that stands through the entirety of the life cycle. This study, they did look at, take a look at, at people at three different ages, around 18 years of age, 60 years of age, and then the centenarians. So they were, they were getting a little bit of a picture of what this looks like, but like, we don't have this clarity of, you know, what, what is the evolution of the virome as we move through life? But we do have a, a relatively clear picture of the evolution of our microbiome in terms of these bacteria and how they change during the course of our life cycle. And, you know, one of the things that's quite striking, Chuck, I, I noticed that there was someone um, in the chat who uh, said, can we talk about inflammation? And so, so one of the things that's quite striking is the way in which the development of our microbiome during our early years of life actually impacts our immune system and what our immune system recognizes to be good or normal or bad. In a way, our microbiome is training our immune system. And the reason that I bring this up is because I saw another recent study, Chuck, a different study, where they looked at the microbiome of people at age 12 months, and they were able to predict using the information from a poop sample of a child who is 12 months old, they could predict who was going to go on to develop allergic type issues. That means that means asthma, that means seasonal allergies, that means food allergies. They could predict that based upon a poop sample from a 12-month-old. That's amazing, dude. Again, I said it recently on the show, and I'll say it again. Like, I should not have slept through science class growing up. I don't know what has changed between now and then, but I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, man. Did, did you show up for science class in high school? Did you? I'm sure you did. You, you strike me. You strike me as the kind of guy that's always been on board with this stuff. Come on, man. Of course, I love I, science. I, I love. Science. I was a chemistry major in college. There you go. Right, the Mac Daddy of nerdy. microbiome. Of course, you super were super nerdy. Of I'm like in this chemistry lab and blowing stuff up. I mean, that was me. All right, super nerd. Uh, let's nerd out about this. It also said in the article, at least a quarter of the viruses found in centenarians encoded genes that support key stages of sulfate metabolism. Number one, what is sulfate metabolism? Number two, how do we think it applies here? Well, um, that's interesting. It's not, I, I'm not totally sure, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm not totally clear on exactly what they're getting at in terms of sulfate metabolism. Obviously, we know that there are examples of sulfur-rich foods, like garlic that comes to mind, that are clearly beneficial to our health and have a longevity effect. So it sort of makes you wonder if we're talking about similar concepts here or not. But I think going a little bit beyond this, though, Chuck, really, what they when they boiled it down, what they ultimately said was happening downstream from this um, this alteration of sulfate metabolism is they said that this was ultimately proving to create a more competent gut barrier. So the point being that when you have an intact, functional, diverse gut microbiome, that you are able to create a better gut barrier that is able to basically like keep what's supposed to stay inside your intestines in your intestines and allow only the good stuff to get into your bloodstream and into your body and into contact with your immune system. And that to me is is like one of the fun, one of the key core concepts when it comes to understanding how our gut microbiome interplays with our immune system, our metabolism, and all these other parts of our body.
which is, I mean, so counter to kind of what we're, we're taught in terms of the longevity here, because it seems like you have this group of people who are now 100 or older, who you could make a strong argument because of what it is we're talking about here, have stronger immune systems than the typical person. I mean, it says also here that they have unique intestinal bacteria. They, it, it produced unique bile acids that kept infections at bay. We're right. talking about people over 100 that have that. People in their 40s, 50s, 60s, a lot of us don't. Yeah, and, and they're trying they're trying to decode these, frankly, quite complex things that are dynamically changing by the millisecond. And, um, and we're looking for insights into this. And I think that the key takeaway here is let's not um, sit on our hands and wait for, um, for scientists to, you know, create some sort of pill that we take that delivers bacteriophages and think that that's going to be the solution in the long run. You know, every single time that we try to engineer, uh, like excessively engineer the way that the body works, we end up discovering that we're not as good at it as we think that we are. And instead, I think that the, the you know, foundational approach here is that there are steps that we can take that are clearly proven to provide longevity, to allow us to live longer, healthier lives, that ultimately work through the gut microbiome and they can be implemented today and we don't need to wait another day. And no matter what age you are, no matter what age you are, the opportunity exists to add, to add lifespan, to add health span. You can live longer and you can live healthier with the choices that you start like literally today. And to me, you know, I, I come back to, it's a, it's a simple concept, but it's an effective concept. I come back to fiber. I come back to fiber. What does the data say? The data say that people who consume more fiber, they live longer because they're less likely to have a heart attack. They're less likely to have a stroke. They're less likely to be diagnosed with multiple types of cancer. They're less likely to die of heart disease or cardiovascular disease. They're less likely to die of different forms of cancer. They're less likely to be diagnosed with diabetes. And I could keep going. And that's just conceptually like what happens when we consume more fiber, which by the way, only works because it comes into contact with our microbiome. And here we are in 95% of Americans don't adequately consume fiber. And if there's like, if I could change one thing, it would be this. And if we change this one thing, I'm almost hundred percent certain that like we would be adding many years to, to life expectancy within our country. And yet we continue to see life expectancy head in the opposite direction. So let's give, uh, let's give the exam roomies some tips for bulking up on fiber. I know that we talk about that all the time, but I feel like because, by and large, Dr. B, we're still headed in the wrong direction in a lot of places, we have to keep giving these tips, man. So let's talk about some of the foods that we may want to introduce to add fiber to our plates and then also the ones that we want to crowd out and leave behind as we start building this more diverse and healthier microbiome that could add years to our life. I mean, if, if I'm only given one choice, I'm going to start with a simple category of food that some people out there would tell you that, that, that you should be removing. And I'm telling you, you should be adding way more legumes, super simple legumes. These are the longevity foods, by the way, they also happen to be dirt cheap, They're not expensive. They're borderline non-perishable. You could keep them in your, you know, you could buy them in bulk and keep them uh, in your cupboard for months on end. And the, the beauty of legumes, and I think what makes them special and what makes them one of the common threads that ties together the, the five or six different blue zones is that they contain multiple different forms of prebiotics. Prebiotics, by the way, are food for our microbiome. This is what our microbiome needs to be strong and effective at its job. 
And so, so legumes contain fiber and resistant starches and polyphenols. And these are the three key uh, prebiotics that exist. We can get them all from one source. So Chuck, if I only am offered one opportunity uh, to choose a food, that's where I would start. And again, they're dirt cheap. And the average American in the United States is consuming just six pounds of legumes per year, which if you think about that within the context of how much sugar, how much cheese, how much red meat we consume, um, it's like actually pathetically small. Bro, I'm killing about a pound of legumes a day and hummus alone, right? That counts, right? Doesn't it? Hummus, would that count? Of course. Yeah. Over 10%. All right. right. Then I'm like at 365 pounds and that's just the starting point, man. Where do you think you are? Give me an estimate. How many pounds of legumes is Dr. B getting a year? Oh gosh. I mean, it's clearly a substantially more than six. I don't, it's hard for (laughs) me to say. Well, because sometimes I'll get um, the Chana Masala. Like there's a great Indian restaurant nearby. And, um, and of course, what I get from the Indian restaurant is the Chana Masala, which is just basically chickpeas and sauce. And it's spectacular and it's delicious. And you don't feel like you're eating, you know, you don't feel like you're eating beans. You, you're just eating this delicious meal mixed with rice. Um, yet, like, I'm quite sure that when I, like, eat my bowl of Chana Masala, it's probably a pound and a half of legumes right there. All right. Next time I'm in town, next time I'm paying Dr. B a house call, we're going to go. I, I, I've been sleeping on the fact that there was an Indian restaurant near you, man. Like this is, this is news to me. Exciting news. Yeah. I, I had never tried Indian food until I was in my thirties, not even once. And once I discovered it, it was like a game changer for me because the beautiful thing is that the, um, the Indian diet authentically is, is a mostly plant-based, largely vegetarian, and in many cases, vegan diet. So it's, it's very friendly to the concepts that we teach in terms of trying to eat more plants, including more legumes. They love lentils too. Oh yeah. Dude, you know what? I was a late adopter of the vegan diet as well. Like I probably you and I may have tried it on the same day. I don't know. Um, but definitely the first time it hit my lips, man, it was so good. Uh, it was like old Frank, the tank from old school. Once it hits your lips, so good. <laughs> So good, man. Um, I want to say hi to Kelly, who's watching right now and making uh, Jane Esselstyn's lentil soup. Uh, so that's pretty cool. She's up in Syracuse, your old stomping grounds, Dr. B. That's awesome. Uh, by the way, Jane Esselstyn, Rip, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, and Esselstyn, they're all going to be joining me and Dr. Neil Barnard in Washington, D.C. on November 7th at the National Press Club, a big night to honor the Esselstyn family with the exam room live and in person would love it if you could be there too there's a link to pick up your tickets in the episode notes right now november 7th um maybe we'll have lentil soup i don't know it'll be november it'll be cool it'll be a good time for that you've got some good soup recipes in the fiber fueled cookbook do you not oh of course i mean i'm a huge fan of the soups the stews the chilies like and we're starting to get into that that season particularly depending on where you live we're starting to get into that sort of season and i i love that kind of food this time of year Oh, it's so good, man. Oh, I love it. Um, let's talk more about lentils because we have a question from Richie at 1222 who's wondering whether non-organic lentils are safe to eat, in your opinion. Um, so these are these are good questions because sometimes with uh with legumes, they um in order to if you're gonna, you know, offer it up bagged, for example, dried lentils, dried beans. Uh, they have to dry them out. And one of the ways that you can actually accomplish that is through the use of chemicals like glyphosate, which um, 
whenever possible, my preference is to try to avoid that. This being said, Chuck, if we think about all the studies that have been done demonstrating that legumes, beans, and lentils, and peas have longevity benefits, there's very few, almost none, that actually specify that they be organic. These are studies that are using conventional foods, conventionally farmed, conventionally raised. And yet we see these benefits, these overwhelming benefits. So I don't want people to allow the whole organic versus non-organic debate to, for them to stand in the way of consuming delicious plant-based foods because study after study after study, like show me where, show me where consuming plant-based food is actually causing harm. Show me where consuming plant-based food, people are living less long with more disease. Those studies don't exist. And yet we have many different forms of plant-based foods that are prepared through different agricultural practices. And the bottom line from my perspective is that don't let the agricultural practices stand in the way of healing uh, health-promoting foods. Yeah. And, you know, here's kind of my simplistic non-doctor way of looking at that is, you know, a lot of times when organic versus non-organic comes up into the conversation, glyphosate also works its way in there. And my point is this, it's like, all right, well, there's something in there that you may not want, but, you know, what are your alternatives? Are you going to tell me that a conventional legume is less healthy than going to the drive-thru? Are you telling me that that conventional legume is going to do more harm to you than a triple cheeseburger, a large fries, and a Diet Coke? Like, come on, man. Like, at some point, common sense needs to kick in here. And that's coming from a former 420-pound guy. And that is a super simplistic way of looking at it. But it's also a way that I think that we should be looking at it because it's a concept that all of us can grasp. And I'm not sure that there's anybody out there who could genuinely argue that the triple cheeseburger, that the large fries, that the Diet Coke were, in fact, healthier than the conventional legume. It just does not compute on any level to me, Dr. Green. No, it doesn't, it doesn't compute on any level. And, um, and you know, let's not forget that there's issues around those foods beyond just the nutritional quality of those foods. There's there's agricultural concerns there as well. I mean, you know, in the um, Warren's David study published in Nature in 2014, which by the way, is one of the most cited microbiome studies ever done, they did something interesting. They put people on five days of a plant-based diet versus five days of a completely animal-based diet. I recommend that people pull up the study and, and read it for themselves and read what the, the what the authors say in their discussion because um, they're pretty clear in terms of what they thought was beneficial. Uh, the plant-based diet led to, uh, within just uh, five days, changes in the microbiome that are clearly associated with beneficial probiotic microbes. We got more of those. And on the flip side, the five days on the animal-based diet had some concerning features, including the emergence of bacteria such as biophil wadsworthia that are associated with inflammatory bowel disease and associated with colon cancer. Um, but in addition to that, there was a unique finding. And that was that in just five days on an animal-based diet, people developed antibiotic resistance within their gut microbiome. Where does that come from? Well, that is not, antibiotic resistance is not innate to the animal product. Antibiotic resistance comes from the fact that those animals were being treated with antibiotics. And that's one of the issues that exists out there. All right, let's go from antibiotics to anti-nutrients. We just talked about those recently on the show. We have a question from Logan at 1227. What about the lectin in legumes that affect gut health? What do we know about lectin there? Is there any harm or does that also go to what it is we've been talking about? 
Yes, I am so glad that this is being brought up. Thank you, Logan. I saw this question. I was really hoping that you would pull it up, Chuck. Um, so uh, great minds think alike. So lectins, um, a lot of hype, not a lot of science. If you start to dig into lectins, like sincerely, if you go to PubMed and you start searching for what is the effect of lectins on the human body, what you're going to discover is actually quite a few studies that say that they protect us from cancer, which is the number two cause of death in America. And if lectins from, for example, legumes truly did disturb and damage the gut, if they did, if they truly did disturb and damage the gut, then there is absolutely no way, there's absolutely no way that I would sit here and say that they are longevity foods because there would not be data to suggest that people who consume more legumes live longer with less disease. That's because when people disturb and damage their gut microbiome, they are increasingly likely to develop disease, not the opposite of that. So these foods are clearly beneficial in terms of our longevity, clearly reduce. I mean, there's overwhelming evidence, systematic reviews and meta-analyses in which people who consume these foods, they're less likely to have a heart attack. They're less likely to have heart disease. They're less likely to have cancer. There's multiple forms of cancer that are reduced. Um, we could go down the line. There's even more. You're less likely to have diabetes. If it was disturbing and damaging the gut, that simply would not be the case. Now, all of this being said, let's also bear in mind that there are books, you know which ones, that have been published claiming that the source of our epidemics are lectins. And it simply makes no sense. I mean, it makes no sense. The average American is consuming six pounds of legumes per year, which is actually less than our parents did or our grandparents. You know, 50 years ago, people ate eight pounds per year. We're down to six. We've reduced it substantially. And yet all of our issues are stemming from this. It, it just doesn't pass the, the, the test of making any common sense. Um, it's particularly disturbing because many times those books claim that the solution is to purchase a, a supplement that actually has zero studies to demonstrate that it does anything. So I think that there's something kind of fishy going on there. Now, that being said, Chuck, um, with legumes specifically, when you cook them, the, uh, the lectin content is reduced profoundly to the point of being borderline non-existent. If, if you were to consume raw beans, which I do not recommend because they might break your teeth, but if you were to consume raw beans, you may run into a problem with excessive lectin intake. When you cook beans, the lectins borderline disappear entirely. And if you were to pressure cook them, they disappear even more. But frankly, people are not pressure cooking their food when they live longer with less disease. They're just eating beans. Every time like that conversation comes up on the show, the warning about not eating raw beans comes up. I really don't know anybody who puts raw beans in their mouth and tries to chew. Have never met anybody, probably will never meet anybody that does this. It just doesn't sound... Maybe it's something hockey players do. Maybe hockey players, maybe this is why they have no teeth. Uh, is that what it is? Yeah, maybe maybe this is like, they haven't they haven't told us yet, but part of hockey culture is to eat raw beans for fun and, and knock your teeth out. Is that the secret to Gretzky and Ovechkin's success over all those years? Is that what the deal is? Might That's be. hysterical. <laughs> fraud dry beats oh my goodness gracious man i do love this uh leslie frazier how about fermented foods and longevity do we know anything there fermented it's okay foods. if we don't um well uh so like let's take the study that we just were looking at and one of the things that was quite striking and noticeable you know we tend to focus on the viruses 
because I think that was the novel, that was the novel discovery. But one of the things that was, you know, I mean, at this point, we've heard this before and we were hearing it again, um, which is sort of validating, is that there was diversity, diversity within the gut microbiome of people who lived longer. Centenarians have more gut diversity. This is a theme that keeps popping up. Diversity within the gut microbiome is associated with uh, reduced risk of, of different health conditions and associated with longevity. And so how can we add diversity to our microbiome? That's a question. And one of the most clear, one of the most clear ways to do this is actually with fermented food. And this was the study that I've referenced many times in our conversations, Chuck, but I'll do it just in case people haven't heard me talk about this before, which is the Sonnenberg and Christopher Gardner study out of Stanford University, where they found that after eight weeks of ramping up fermented food consumption from borderline nothing to adding several serves of fermented foods to your diet per day, people actually increased the diversity within their gut microbiome. This wasn't a randomized controlled trial. This wasn't this wasn't just us, you know, uh, looking at associations. This is like they actually did a randomized control trial, and this is what they found. You can increase the diversity within your gut microbiome with fermented food. And that, to me, suggests that fermented foods are longevity foods. By the way, I would also add that um, if we did want to look at this from sort of an epidemiologic perspective, which I'm always inclined to do, I think we should be integrating multiple forms of information uh, to kind of paint the picture and try to understand what's happening in the world. If we were to do that, let's look at wh where are the societies that are industrial societies that are as, as urban as we are, if not more, and yet they outpace us in terms of longevity by a substantial margin. Where are these places? And one of them is South Korea, and another is Japan. And one of the things that you discover is that in these places, they're consuming way more beans, they're consuming more plants, they're consuming way more fermented food than we are. Bring on the kimchi. I love me some kimchi the way that you love sauerkraut, man. There's just no question about it. Um, going back to the great dry bean debate, Krista did raise an interesting point here. Okay. In 1235, what about grinding up dry chickpeas to make flour? Well, you have to cook that flour. Um, if you don't cook that flour, then uh, you could potentially have a problem. Actually, there was an interesting thing that happened. This is one of the commonly cited things by people who, who want us to believe that lectins are problematic. Um, there was uh, something that happened in Japan many years ago where a television station encouraged people to basically grind up white beans. And so they, they, they ground up these white beans and they consumed this powder as a powder. And so the issue is that they were basically like bypassing the barrier to consuming raw beans, right? Because the barrier is that it will knock your teeth out because the beans are so hard. So they're using modern technology to break down the beans into a powder and then they were consuming it. And then people got sick. How sick? Did anyone die? No, there was no one who died. Were some people sick as if they had like a, a bug, like a virus? Yes, that's what happened. So because they had lectin poisoning as a result of consuming raw beans, it did give them a, a, a it did have an effect in the sense that it gave them the equivalent of a gastroenteritis. And 24 hours later, they were back to work. It was <laughs> not that big of a deal, but they felt pretty stupid because they realized, well, we really shouldn't be telling people to eat raw beans.
I mean, no pun intended, but was this some sort of like a viral challenge that they were issuing? Like what, what in the, why? Like, yeah, it was like some sort of challenge that they were doing. Um, this is pre TikTok, Uh, and this is, this was back when people watched television, like the local channels. And so on the local channel, they had some sort of re thing that they were doing. I don't recall why they did this, why they told people to do this, but basically next thing you know, the station was fielding phone call after phone call saying, I don't feel well. And again, it comes back to, you shouldn't be eating raw beans. Mm. All right. Note to self, do not tell people to eat raw beans. Thank you. Uh, Leslie Frazier, another question at 1233. Is there a list that compares legume values such as, is a garbanzo bean better than a butter bean? I don't know. What what does Dr. B's bean ranking say here? All of them. I want all of them. <laughs> give me as many varieties. Seriously, give me as many varieties as possible. If you make chili for me, if I come over to your house and we're going to watch football and you're making chili and there's only one bean in there, I will be disappointed. I will be disappointed. I want at least five beans in there. Let's make it happen. Dude, I'm excited. I got a bag of 15 bean blend. Like I, I'm pumped to do something with it. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I actually bought this. Like my father-in-law who lives with us, he loves, he's not vegan by any stretch. So he loves getting these pento beans that they come with like this little ham flavor packet. So uh, he gets this, but then he's like, well, they also got this 15 bean blend here. And I was like, give me the 15 bean blend and I just won't use the packet. And dude, there are beans in here that I don't even recognize, but I am pumped up to see what I can do with some 15 beans. If, if you were like sitting down to some chili and somebody told you like, Dr. B, this has 15 beans, are you going to be able to handle it? What would you say? I mean, are you kidding me? I would jump up and we would have the biggest high five in the history of high fives, bigger than any sort of high five <laughs> that this, this hypothetical football game would allow us to have. And, um, dude, I mean, this is, this is the way that like we deserve to eat, right? Variety, variety. So let's start here. Even within legume family, even within the legume family, they're not all the same. Different legumes have different nutrients, right? They may all carry fiber. They may all carry different forms of resistant starches and polyphenols, but they're not exactly the same. Those are different forms of fiber, resistant starches, polyphenols, not to mention other vitamins and minerals. So every single food has its strengths and to be fair, its weaknesses. Not, not one single food can provide everything that you need by itself. If you only ate one food, you would not be very healthy. This is why variety is so fantastic and wonderful because variety allows us to basically band together the strengths of what everyone can do working together as a team like the Avengers to improve your health. And yet at the same time, there's something about variety that's fun. There's something about variety that's delicious. Isn't that what we ultimately want? If you're making chili, I want 15 beans in there, Chuck. I would expect no less from you, my friend. Oh, well, see, now the bar is set like right here. No, and I'm I, like, I mean, I might try to get that up to 30. Like, let me see what kind of beans are in there. And then I'll go find 15 others. Let's just get like, ridiculous with it. Why not? I mean, what, it's what we do. I mean, we are a couple of goofy guys. Like, why not? Let's let's go for 30. Beans. Matter of fact, in the chat, you're watching live. This is the dumbest question I will ever ask. But what is the maximum number of beans you would feel comfortable eating in a single bowl of chili? Right. Could you fill an entire bowl with one individual type of bean? 
and you just have like 8 million different kinds in there. I don't know. Let me know. What's the maximum number of beans you would ever put in your chili? And what's the maximum number you've ever done? Now I feel kind of like wimpy with that can of three bean, uh, three, what what do they call it? Like tri-bean blend or something like that? Start. It's a start. Yeah. That's okay. You should always opt for the tri-bean blend over the kidney bean by itself. You should always go for more. Yeah, dude. But I feel like after the 15 bean, like there's just so much being left on the table. Why don't they make a can of 15 beans? Huh? I don't know. I mean, let's keep this pretty straightforward here. Like to me, what is the purpose of chili? The purpose of chili is to deliver hot sauce and beans to my mouth in a way that makes me happy. <laughs> period. Like that is the definition of chili in the Bolsowitz household. All right. Now, hold on. Let's let's talk about this because now you piqued my interest. I love me some hot sauce. So what is the go-to hot sauce in Dr. B's house? Oh, dude, how much time we got for this? I'm sure. I don't know how However much got. time we need. We're talking about the most important thing anybody ever will talk about on the face of the earth today. Let's talk. Um, so there are fermented hot sauces. Many of the hot sauces that are fantastic are actually fermented. It's not hard to make fermented hot sauce, by the way. You actually just take chili peppers and you would ferment them in a brine solution in conceptually the exact same way that you would create pickles. And then the difference being that you blend them up and that's going to be your hot sauce, right? And you could strain it, you could strain it, but ultimately that becomes your hot sauce. Um, so uh, I, we have a fermented hot sauce um, that is produced here locally in Charleston. Like I would have to go down to my fridge and start pulling some stuff out because I got like about five varieties. But we have a fermented hot sauce that's produced here in Charleston. Um, that's absolutely spectacular. Um, I do tend to love Asian flavors and Asian-themed hot sauces. I'm a huge sriracha fan. I miss – has anyone noticed this? Let me know in the chat box. Have you noticed that the traditional sriracha with the rooster is no longer in your store? I have noticed this, and I have noticed it's also not in the restaurants and what I've found out is that there was a shortage of the uh, chili peppers that they use this year. And so they haven't been able to produce it. And so if you want to buy this sauce, you go to eBay and it's literally going to cost you $100. I'm not kidding. So anyway, I love that sauce. I also love like uh, Thai chili powders or, or not powders, uh, Thai chili paste. Thai chili paste, which is another form of hot sauce. So like to me, these are all just variations and it depends on what dish I'm doing and I'll just start throwing stuff in there. I'm all about the hot sauce. Oh yeah, dude. Oh man, I want to try that that sauce. Again, next time I'm in, bring it with us when we go to the Indian restaurant. Let's go. Um, Annie, talking about the, how many different beans you put in the chili. Annie says, I typically put in black, pinto, kidney, and lentils, but I guess I need to step up my variety. But look, I mean, that's... The fact that you're adding lentils on top of the traditional beans in there, I think, Dr. B, Annie's taking a huge step in the right direction. I love it. I'm a huge fan. Annie, high five for me. Boom. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. All right, here, let's grab a couple more before we wrap up here. Uh, talking about fermented foods, let's put a bow on this. RK brings it back to what about the sodium that's found in a lot of these fermented foods? That's a typical counter argument. Let's revisit that really quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, so you and I, we have, we have discussed this many times, but here, here, here's what I would say. So um, if you are eating an ultra-processed American diet, it is excessively high in sodium. And if that is the case, you need to reduce your sodium intake. Should you reduce your sod sodium intake by um, avoiding fermented foods? Like, is that the solution when we have studies 
that show that fermented foods are one of the few foods that like in a randomized controlled trial can add to the diversity within your gut microbiome? Should you forego that in the interest of making that the area where you cut back on your sodium? No, that doesn't make any sense. That's sacrificing. Like that's basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. Instead, cut down on the sodium intake from your junk food, which is the ultra processed foods. All right. Cut down on your sodium intake there. And when you get yourself to a normal amount of sodium intake, which by the way, if you're consuming a mostly plant-based diet is extremely easy to accomplish because plants are not the problem unless you're adding a tremendous amount of salt to them. So when you get yourself to a place where you have normalized your salt intake, then the consumption of salt in your diet through fermented food, like in moderation is not a problem at all. And I don't understand why people would make that like that's excessive levels of scientific reductionism to say salt is bad. Therefore don't eat fermented foods. That's missing the big picture. The big picture here is that the healthiest populations on the planet are consuming way more fermented food than us. And part of the reason why is because fermented foods contribute to a healthier gut microbiome. And isn't that something that we want? And let me just add my personal experience here. If you'll indulge me for a second, when I was 420 pounds overweight, eating the standard American diet on steroids, blood pressure uncontrolled was like 185, 190 over 90 or hundred, like super, super deluxe high. Today, I eat kimchi literally every single day. I eat sauerkraut at least four to five times a week. My blood pressure this morning, I checked it just for grins, was 107 over 68. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you, Dr. B? Help me interpret those results. Am uh, I doing the right thing? Chuck, some people would say, well, it'd be 95 over 45 if you <laughs> if you cut out the kimchi. But, you know, nonetheless, no, I think that I think that the point is well taken. And I think that, you know, I, I completely get that um, that like part of the conversation, because I, I, I function this way, too. Part of the conversation is to identify where people are consuming an excessive amount of something and then in a way to vilify that. Right. Because how do you get people to change what they eat? It's not easy. And if you're too passive about it, if you say, well, then nothing's bad, well, then no one's going to ever change their diet. They're just going to continue with the status quo. So we do have to identify where there are problems, but we have to also acknowledge and recognize that the problems exist within the standard American diet and that there are levels of salt consumption that are not only healthy, there are levels of salt consumption that exist that actually are required for you to be healthy. So we shouldn't reduce our salt intake to zero. And in the same time, we need to see the bigger picture with our food. When we excessively fixate on specific micronutrients and miss the entire food, this is how we get ourselves into trouble. And the big picture is that these foods are healthful foods that contribute to a healthier gut microbiome that are consumed by the longest lived populations on the planet, period. All right, let's end with this. And it really doesn't have much to do with longevity, but it is a very interesting question that we have never covered here on the show before. We were talking about food poisoning a little bit earlier and ML chimed in with a question in the chat, wondering what happens when we come down with a bout of food poisoning? Is all the good that we did to build up a healthy microbiome gone? And then do we have to start over from scratch after that? No, I mean, you're, you're, if you were to, for example, take a sample of your, of your gut microbiome in that exact moment, you, it wouldn't be a picture that's pretty. You wouldn't like what you see. And that's because your gut microbiome is under duress. But also the minute that it's over, your gut microbiome is bouncing back very quickly. When you do something that alters your gut microbiome on a temporary basis, 
and it's only a temporary basis, then your gut microbiome is able to recover very quickly. Um, when you do things that have a profound impact on your microbiome, even when they're on a temporary basis, an example, of this would be antibiotics. That's a different story. It does take longer for your microbiome to recover. And in some cases, there's an effect that lingers no matter what. It could be years later. We could still tell you've had that you've taken those antibiotics. We call that a microbiome scar. That microbiome scar is there. It's going to stay there. That's a permanent change. Um, but like small things that change our microbiome, same would be true, by the way, of prepping for a colonoscopy. So I mentioned, I noticed that there was someone in the, in the chat that was talking about having a colonoscopy. When you prep for a colonoscopy, it does have a negative effect on your microbiome temporarily, but you bounce back very quickly. And so we shouldn't let that negative effect that's very temporary stand in the way of us having what is potentially a life-saving procedure. All right, let's wrap things up here for today. I mean, look, we know that the microbiome has been tied to all kinds of chronic diseases that just shed years off of our life like you wouldn't believe. Alzheimer's, uh, for women, endometriosis, everybody, you've got cancer, diabetes, heart disease, like all of these things the microbiome is really involved in. So Dr. B, somebody comes to you, they're like, I want to get my microbiome in order. I want to live longer, healthier. Is that possible? You say to them... 110% it's possible. You can literally make changes today, small changes that could change your microbiome by tomorrow. And it would be a snowball effect. You're not going to change the whole thing all at once, but step by step, day by day, you start to reinforce these changes. You consume more fiber, consume fermented foods, you exercise, you sleep, you reduce your stress. You give a person a hug. You share an experience with someone you love. You do these things you will see the effects and they will come and it will be uh, profound. And you will notice, you will notice the difference in your bowel movements. No doubt about it. And look, you know, the, the, the thought of change and all the things that go into it, that can seem so overwhelming. But one of the things that I love about you is how you've really put this into a concise and easy to digest manner up on your website, theplantfedgut.com. Obviously, the masterclass is there. The microbiome 21 is there. And then I was poking around this morning, too. I saw this one that said, oh, by the way, you've got a class for overcoming food intolerance. That is awesome, man. Great resource there. Yeah, man. Uh, for me, like I feel fortunate and blessed to have the opportunity to write books and teach courses and provide educational materials for free um, that uh, can make a positive impact in people's lives. And so for me, that's what I wake up every day and I, and I work hard to do. And there's many ways for people to engage with me and my work. Um, and it, it, falls along an entire spectrum of engagement. And it can also fall along an entire spectrum in terms of the intensity of uh, the cost, whether that be time or money. And so there's a lot of options out there for people. But at the end of the day, um, if you're someone who has these conditions, I know that you need help. And I don't think that the current system is providing that. And that's where I step in to say, I have things that I think can help you. And so that's, that's an example of one. Yeah, man, you've got the website, you've got the books. Matter of fact, Karen at 1201 today wrote, when I told my daughter in Austin, Texas to read Dr. B's book, she said her doctor had already recommended it to her. How cool is that, man? Coast to coast and around the world, you truly are just like us, helping to make the world a healthier place, man. And we could not be any more grateful to you for that. So thank you again, my friend. It's my pleasure, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. 
awesome show with Dr. B as always. And I loved what he said that it's never too late to start adding diversity to your diet, to start building your health back up. If there's one message that I wish anybody would ever take away from the show is that it is never, ever, ever too late. And there's a link to this centenarian microbiome study for you right now in the episode notes if you would like to check that out. And don't forget also to check out Dr. B's website, theplantfedgut.com. Sign up for his courses. There's a link to do that right now in the episode notes as well. And again, coming up November 7th, you want to talk about living longer? How about spending an evening with a gentleman who proved that it's possible in particular when it comes to combating the number one cause of death, and that is heart disease. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and the entire Esselstyn family will be joining me and Dr. Neil Barnard in Washington, D.C. on November 7th at the National Press Club. It is a night honoring the Esselstyn family and all of the contributions that they have made, the wonderful contributions that they have made to our health. Washington, D.C., November 7th, the exam room live and in person. We're going to be taping a show with the whole family, and we would love for you to be there November 7th at the National Press Club. There's a link to grab your tickets right now in the episode notes. And these tickets are priced to move. So please, we would love to see you there. Also, don't forget coming up September 20th, a night with Dr. Neil Barnard and Carbon Works. That's going to be at the Narrow Cinema on Collie Avenue in Norfolk, Virginia. My hometown starts at 7.15. Tickets for that, pcrm.org slash events or that link that is in the episode notes as well. And we're going to keep this wrap up on the short side today, but I will ask you one favor, and that is if you feel inspired and that you've learned something today, you've raised your health IQ by a point or two, be sure to subscribe to The Exam Room, follow it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows, and leave that five-star rating and a nice review. That is how we continue to grow and reach even more people with this life-saving and life-changing information. Think about when you first decide discovered the impact that diet can have on your health. And if you're plant-based, when you first began to learn about plant-based eating and all of the amazing, extraordinary benefits that can come with it and how excited you were, well, let's pass that excitement along. Do that right now by following, by subscribing, leaving the five-star rating. And if you feel like leaving a nice review as well, I would love you for that too. But for today, That, my friend, is all the time that we have. I want to say thank you once again to our friend, the guru of gut health, the Mac Daddy of microbiome, Mr. Fiber Fuel, the gut health MD, Dr. Will Bolsonwitz. Fun show today. Absolutely fun, fun, fun show. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always... Keep it plant-based.